All right. Well, let's get right into our passage today. And uh, welcome. It's good to see you here. Thanks for being in church today. Thanks. It's good. Um, I am glad to be here. Neat. Um, if we've never met before, my name is Mark. I'm the lead pastor here at Crosspoint, and we're just really glad that you have decided to join us. And right now, what's also very awesome is we've got a whole other crew of Crosspointers worshiping with us on the south side at the Cineplex Theaters. And so we want to say hello to all of them, and uh, we're glad that you are in church today with us as well. Um, we're going to talk about Jesus today. That's what we do. That's kind of what we do here. And uh, we're also continuing to talk about home and family and how all of those things kind of overlap with one another. Uh, our passage today is in the book of Matthew. If you've got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 9. And it says, verse 9, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. And then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices for I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. All right, I brought a little something along with me today to help preach this message. All right, how many of you know what this is? This is a leaf. It's not a leaf leaf. It's a table leaf. And uh, a table leaf is a thing that you put in your table to make it bigger. Or it's a thing you take out of your table to make it smaller. And then you have to clean off all of the gross crumbs that got on. You got to like sand this thing down, hypothetically, if you're going to bring it on stage to use it as a sermon illustration. Because what gets caught in there is nasty. And you don't see it for years because who takes out their table leaf when 48 people live in your house? This is a table leaf. You use it to make your table bigger. Um, table leaves are for people with big families, right? If you have a small family, you probably don't use your table leaf, right? A table can sit four people comfortably. Four people's not big. Four people's normal. Our world thinks that the normal-sized family is four. Have you ever noticed that? The world thinks that the, the biggest your family should be is four. That's the acceptable size. If you decide to have five or six or more people in your family... You have greatly inconvenienced yourself for the rest of your life. Right? For instance, cars. Cars are designed to seat how many people? Four. You might say five, but that back middle seat is a happy accident. No one sits there on purpose. No one wants it. If you've got five people in a car, you are not traveling a very long distance. So if you have five or six or more people in your family, you don't own just a car. No, no, you get to pay more money for a van or something bigger, which means you're even paying more money for gas, and it's awesome because the world wants to punish you for having more than four people in your family. It's your own fault. Same with hotels. You ever notice that a hotel is designed for four people? You go in there, and it's a room that has two beds that each sleep two people. And if you walk into a hotel and you're like, oh, there's actually five of us, they're like, oh, I'm going to have to see if I can get you a cot. 
It's going to cost you more. And the cot is an ironing board with a mattress on top of it. It's the worst thing in the world. You end up sleeping on the floor anyway. They're like, oh, sorry that you have more than four people in your family. What were you thinking? And then, then you go on a trip. They design trips to be for families of four. If you go to a, like a travel place and they're like, oh, here's a travel package. It's for a family of four. You, you try and go to Disney. You're like, oh, it's for a family of four. You're like, no, I got five. Oh, that's going to cost you extra. You're going to pay more for that fifth wheel. And if you've got six, well, you already know that you don't travel. So that's fine. <laughs> Ain't no one with six taking trips. Restaurants, same thing. You walk into a restaurant, and your family's coming through the door, and the host is like, table for four? And you're like, no, I got five or six. They're like, oh, I'm going to go have to move some things. I'm going to have to move things. around. They make it sound like they have to go renovate a whole wing, right? We'll be right with you. I just got to hire a crew to do the demo work in the back corner. We'll be there in like, you know, a month or two. You can have your... No, why? Why does the world assume that you should be punished for having more than four people? The world is not designed for big families. It's not wants to punish your large family. Today, I want to encourage us as a church that we want to be the biggest family that we can be. We want to be a big family. We, we want to be the biggest family. We want to be the kind of family that has to add the leaf to their table so that more people can sit with us. We want to be the kind of family that has to add a leaf because we always want to be making more room for people to sit at our table. That's the gospel message. But listen, this is not a sermon about church growth. This is a sermon about church grace, about who gets to sit around our table, about who we make room for at the table. So let's look at our passage again, verse 9. It says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. I always feel like there's got to be more to the conversation than just that. But that's what we get. And, and here's what we need to know from verse 9. Tax collectors were the worst. They, they were awful, terrible, corrupt people for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, one was that mainly no one likes to pay their taxes to begin with. No one wants to give the government more money. Am I correct in saying that? And so the person who personifies that role kind of takes the brunt. No one likes the tax collector because no one likes to pay their taxes. But it's even worse when your government is as corrupt and as horrific as the Roman Empire was. If you complain about living in, in our kind of part of the world with our politicians, fine. Be thankful you didn't live there then. Way worse and tax collectors worked for them. On top of that, tax collectors were also kind of slimy cheaters, and they would always, they'd give you your tax bill, but they'd make it way more than what it should have been, and they would pocket what was on top of that just as their own personal profit. They would cheat you out of your own money because they wanted to have more. They would kind of jack the bill up. It was like giving themselves a generous tip every single time they went and collected the taxes. And on top of that, that the tax collectors we're reading about today uh, would have been Jewish people, but Rome was Gentiles. And so you had Jews working for the Gentiles. So a little bit of Bible background here. A Gentile was not a specific nationality. It was not a specific location. They weren't people who lived in Gentile and they called themselves the Gentiles. No, no, for the Jewish people, a Gentile was literally anyone who wasn't them. That was the term they used. It was Jews and not Jews. 
It was God's people and all of the other people. They didn't refer to them as Italians or Asians or Greeks. It was Jew and then Gentile. It didn't matter if they were a man or a woman or where they were from. It didn't matter if they were red and yellow, black and white. You were a Jew or you weren't. And they would say it like that. Gentiles. Gentiles were the enemies. Gentiles, they would consider them unclean. You wouldn't eat with a Gentile. You wouldn't have a Gentile in your home. You certainly wouldn't marry a Gentile. Gentile couldn't come and worship at your synagogue. It was the insiders and it was the outsiders. And so here's what makes that bad is that you had Jewish people working for the Gentiles. These tax collectors were were almost buddying up with the Gentiles, and, and they were both profiting from this. It was just the most despicable act that you could think of. And so because of the way that they lived, the tax collectors were usually well off. They were wealthy, kind of the 1%, and they would live that lavish lifestyle. And you had all these other kind of poor people on the other end of the economic spectrum looking up at the rich people, the the rich Jews, thinking, I don't have grocery money this week because that guy's using it to party with all of his friends. That was your first century tax collector, just a slimy, traitorous cheat. And Jesus asks one, Hey, do you want to be my disciple? And he does. It's no small thing. I'm sure some of Jesus' people were like, oh, hold on, what? You're going to ask one of them to be your disciple. You're going to invite one of those guys to be on your team, to, to be a part of your little gang here. That No, it's, that's not going to work for me because, see, people had been watching Jesus They heard rumors about him, rumors about his birth. They'd seen some of his teaching. They knew what he was claiming. And so they're kind of got their eye on this Jesus guy and wondering, maybe he really is the Messiah. Maybe there's something to this Jesus. But now they're like, no way, not with a tax collector as his buddy. He's inviting him to be part of his gang. right? Do you remember like when you were a kid or maybe still now and, and you would start to hang out with this new person and your mom was like, no, you don't. Mom does not approve. I don't know that family. I don't like that. I don't like that kid. I don't like what they're going to do to you. I'm worried about this. I, I, I assume that's what all of Jesus' friends and family were saying right about now. Really? This guy? This guy doesn't even go to church. This guy doesn't go to the temple. He doesn't believe. Did you do a criminal background check on this guy? He's going to discredit everything. I can't believe you're hanging around with a tax collector. But with Jesus, it doesn't matter. In fact, it only gets more scandalous in the next verse. It says, later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. So now he's going to his house. He's going to eat a meal with them. And, and again, you can hear all of Jesus' friends be like, you're going you're gonna to sit at that guy's table and eat his food? People are going to think you're friends. They're going to think that it's okay to associate with those kinds of people. I don't, I don't know about this. They're disreputable sinners. Isn't that what a term? Disreputable meaning don't have a great reputation in the community. 
People know who they are and what they've done. They've probably earned that reputation. They've got a bad rap. If I'm Jesus and I am forming together the group of people that will be my organization that I am about to launch to literally transform the world and try and save mankind, not who I'm picking. That's what all of his friends are thinking. You're going to try that with them? I thought we had a really big, important thing to do, and you're inviting them to be a part of it. And see, the Pharisees are the ones that are freaking out. They would have been the proper Jewish religious authorities. They, They would have been the ones who were obeying the law, talking with who you should talk to, eating dinner with the appropriate people that you would eat dinner with, and, and the Bible says they just happen to see in. It's just purely coincidence, I'm sure, that the Pharisees were in town that day at that house looking through that window. Right? Just purely. They were probably in town doing good deeds. Right? Because you wouldn't deliberately, as a church person, hunt down juicy gossip intentionally. No! It's act, what an accidental thing this is. That the Pharisees walk by that day. And they look in Matthew's house. They, wouldn't had, they didn't have big glass windows. They did not have curtains. It would have been a hole in the front of your house. And people could very well see in. And they would see that Jesus is eating with these people. He's cavorting with them. It's a good word. Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? Man, they had a way with labeling people, didn't they? Scum, disreputable sinners. I'm sure I'm glad the church doesn't label people like that anymore. Why did it matter to them? Why were they so concerned about who Jesus was eating with? Here's what he was doing. He was messing with their long-held beliefs about who's in and who's out. He was messing with their long-held, super-strict traditions that said, this is who's allowed to be at the table, and you're messing with it. This is who we're allowed to associate with. This is who's allowed to know God and be in his family. And, And you just opened the door, you put a leaf in the table, and you're sitting with the wrong people. That's why they're upset. See, they're they were the insiders. That's who's at your table, right? You know who sits at your table. Whoever is at your dining room table on any given night of the week, that's probably your people. Those would be your friends. That would be your family. That would be the people who look like you and talk like you and believe like you and are very similar to you. You you probably don't have a lot of strangers at your table every week. And if they are strangers, then sitting at a table with you probably doesn't make them one for very long. Tables have a way of doing that, don't they? A table's a great way to make a stranger not a stranger. But that's who's supposed to be at the table. And Jesus is putting a leaf in. Now, I know that Matthew is the one who invited Jesus, but Jesus was first the one who invited Matthew and said, come be my disciple. I want you to come follow me. That's the invitation that matters because what Jesus is saying to Matthew is that you're okay by me. I'm okay with this. I'm okay with you being at my table. I'm okay eating with people like you. This is okay by me. Even though the other religious crowd, even though other people have said, you don't belong, you're an outsider, you should be shunned, you're unclean, 
Jesus says, no, you get to sit at my table. Everyone gets to sit at my table. And this wasn't like a teaching time for Jesus. He didn't stand up that day at Matthew's house and be like, no, I want you all to understand what I'm doing right here because theologically, it's... no, 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 he's, this is not a teaching time. He's not in a posture of authority. He's not giving them a sermon. He's not even talking about theology. He's eating a meal at a table. But it says an awful lot. He's saying an awful lot simply by his posture. It's not an authoritative posture. It's a posture of relationship. It's a posture of acceptance and of kindness and of love. And posture can say so much, can it? All right, like if you go to a counselor and he's like, have a seat. I want you to just lay out all these big, huge things you're thinking. And you just start to unload and you look up and he's like scanning his phone. <laughs> his voice might have said, I'm here for you. But his posture says, nah. Right? It, your, your posture says so much. I, di- I may have done this to my wife this week. Game 7 of the World Series was on. It was getting late. It was intense. It was like the perfect ball game. It was like it was being scripted by sports people who do these things. And then my wife got home. She had been out late, and she sat down beside me and started to fill me in on her day. And I'm, like, glued to the TV. And I'm nodding. Yeah, good, dear. Yeah, great. Oh, right? And was, my voice may have said Yes. My posture said, not with you. See, our posture can say an awful lot. There is a right posture for listening and being open. And there is a wrong posture. It's usually like this. Maybe with a scowl, with a disapproving stare. There are right postures and wrong postures for how we communicate to people. And sometimes even when you communicate with your mouth, what you're really saying is said with your posture. And Jesus is doing that. Right? He's reclined around the table. It's a posture of relationship. It's a posture that says, let's have a conversation, you and I. Let's sit around the same table. And, and I think it's the posture that Jesus takes that irritates the Pharisees most of all. It's saying something. It's saying, I'm welcomed to this. You're allowed to be a disciple. You're allowed to be a part of my kingdom. And at that moment, and it's important we get this, was Matthew still, as far as we know, a fairly corrupt tax collector? Yes. Was that the company he was still keeping around his table? I mean, they're, they're right there, disreputable sinners. But did that keep Jesus away? Right, it's not that Jesus wanted Matthew to stay corrupt. Right? In fact, it's, Math- it's Jesus' goal for Matthew to be a disciple. So obviously his plan is for Matthew to have a transformed life, to have an encounter with Jesus that changes him and does a huge 180. That's obviously Jesus' goal, but that's not how he starts the journey. That's not how he begins his relationship with Matthew. It's not with, all right, Matthew, if you're going to be my disciple, here's what you believe, here's what you need to know, here's all the rules and regulations, sign on the dotted line. No, with Matthew, it's, hey, let's eat a meal together at the table. It's a completely different posture. It's not a sermon. It's not a lecture. It's love and it's grace. You see, sometimes I think the church has taken on the wrong posture with certain people people we disagree with, people that we would consider to be outsiders, people that we've believed our whole lives don't belong in the kingdom. We've taken on a posture that sometimes even if our words say, oh, God loves you, our posture's been this. 
Man, we do that, don't we? It's so easy to have a posture of disapproval, so easy to have a posture that, that wags a finger or turns a back or has a disgusted look or writes a nasty post or has a passive-aggressive tone. That's how the Pharisees treated all the Matthews of the day. That was their lot in life. But if we're really trying to reach everyone, if we're really trying to reach the people who are far from Jesus, then we need to start with our posture. Our posture probably needs to change for a lot of people. What, what is your posture towards people that the church has historically deemed unfit? What, what's your posture to people who believe differently than you? What's your posture towards people who act differently than you? Right? How do I treat people in general who aren't at my table? What do I say about the people that I probably wouldn't want at my table? See, our natural inclination in the church, or in general as humans, is to be with people that are like us. Isn't it? That's who you want to be with. That's who you spend time with. People that look like you and talk like you and act like you and believe like you and you have common interests and everyone gathers together and it's a really, really good time. But sometimes we need to step out of that and ask ourselves, maybe even today, have I been excluding anyone? Maybe, maybe not even knowingly, but ha have I been excluding people in my life? When it comes to people who are different, when it comes to people I disagree with. In fact, the real question is, have I ever taken on a posture that wasn't a posture that Jesus took on? Do I have a posture that looks unchristlike? That's when it gets real, isn't it? See, everyone loves following Jesus when he's not messing with our stuff. It's, it's easy to love Jesus when it's just your little family at your little house and your little neighborhood, and then Jesus comes along. He's like, hey, I invited some people to dinner. You're like, who did you invite to dinner? And he's like, oh, you're going to love them. They're from the other side of town. Who did you invite to dinner? And he's like, it's going to be so good. I invited disreputable sinners. I invited scum. I invited Gentiles. And that's when the church has gone, ha, I'm sorry, I don't have room at my table. It seats four. That is the natural-sized family. Is four. Anything more than four is chaos. Anything more than four, that's too many. I don't have any room at the table. And Jesus is like, oh, good news, I'm a carpenter. I made you a leaf. And he says, don't worry, I invited a bunch of people, and there's room at your table. Will you have them? The gospel should change who sits at your table, church. The gospel should change who gets a seat. He puts in a leaf because everyone's welcome to this table. It's a lot easier when I have a mic around my ear. Some of the stuff makes the church nervous, though, doesn't it? We're like, oh, I know I believe this, but it's really hard. Really, the gospel's open for anyone. The church doors are open for any, anyone. Can, and, and Jesus is like, listen to me, verse 12. Healthy people don't need a doctor. It's the sick people that do. Isn't that who you want to reach? Isn't that who needs love? Isn't that who needs salvation? Isn't that who needs to be cleaned up? And he goes, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. 
Jesus is saying, I I want a bigger table. I didn't come for the select few. I didn't come for the clean people. I didn't come for the church people. I didn't come to preach to the choir. We serve a God who invited the uninvited. He welcomed the unwelcomed. He loved the unlovable. He, He forgave the unforgivable. And he included the excluded. That's what he did through his entire ministry, and he still does, even when sometimes his church hasn't been great at it. The church has really struggled in history with putting the leaf in the table. We still have Gentiles today, don't we? And I don't need to list any of them, and I'm not going to list any of them, because I'd rather have him kind of speak to you about who that might be in your own life. It's not just one crowd of people. But we still have Gentiles We still have people that have been told, maybe even just indirectly, don't bother pulling a chair up. There's no room for you at our table. I will say this to you. There will be people with you in heaven that you disagreed with on earth. And God probably will make them be your neighbor. Now listen, just because Jesus offers them a seat at a table doesn't mean he affirms what they're currently doing. Okay? It's important to note, Jesus was not okay with the tax collector staying a tax collector. He was not okay with him being corrupt and a cheater. His goal was to make him a disciple. And I know the church always wants to hop in and say that. I know that God loves everyone, but don't forget about their sin. They can't stay like that. We've got to talk about their sin. Unless we like to focus on their sin, Jesus was good at focusing on the person. See, so often we have issues with people. This is a big issue right now. It's a controversial issue. Issues are people. Issues are people with hearts and minds and feelings and souls. You can't rail against an issue. It's people. How do we speak about people? How do we love the people? How do we offer those people a seat at our table and show them what we really want to show them? Isn't that what you want for everyone, that they would know Jesus? But there's an order that we need to do things in. It's called, let's have a relationship first. Let's have a meal first. Let's be accepting first. It's like Jesus is saying, we're going to have a better chance at showing people the cross if we first show them to a meal. I feel like that's going to work better. That's what he tried to model for us. And he says, go and learn the meaning of this. I love that he says that. He doesn't tell them. He's like, would you just go learn it? He says, go show mercy, don't just offer sacrifices. Offering sacrifices was how they did church, right? That's how they worshiped. That's how they obeyed the law. That's how they kind of crossed all of the check marks off. They, They had to offer sacrifices. And Jesus looks at them and says, I would rather you be merciful and compassionate than say that you just went to church so you're okay. Right, because we can do that, can't we? We we think, oh, I'm fine. I went to church today. Yeah, but do you have compassion on people? Well, no, but I I went to church. I did all. I said the right things. I sat where I always sit, and I sang all the songs. And he's like, I don't, I don't care about your church service if you still don't love people. I don't, I don't care that you offer to sacrifice if you aren't showing compassion. What's the word compassion mean? It means that you feel someone else's pain. He says, before you think that you're great because you went to church, I want you to first ask yourself, do I hurt? Am I broken for people who are far from me? Do I care about the person that I disagree with? Do I love the person that just angered me? 
Am I compassionate? Have I hurt for them yet? Don't ever assume that just going to church somehow gives you the right to exclude someone or not welcome someone or to be unkind to someone. Jesus would rather have your compassion. I think he'd rather have a merciful church, wouldn't he? I want us to feel the pain. Here's a great question to ask. What's it like to be on the other side of me? It's a great question to ask yourself. What's it like to be on the other side of you? Maybe for your family, maybe it's your kids. What about your neighbors? What's it like to be your neighbor? What's it like to be your coworker? What's it like to be on the other side of you when I've just kind of upset you a little bit? Are we compassionate and kind and merciful and gracious? Are we easy to be on the other side of? And Jesus very deliberately blurred, blurred the lines between Jew and Gentile, and the church was not a fan. And the church still wrestles with this a little bit. But you know why I'm so glad he did that? I'm a Gentile. So are you. Most of you. I have no idea. <laughs> There's a Jew in here. I have no idea. But listen, I'm so glad he did that because without Jesus inviting in the Gentiles, I'm on the outside. I don't make it. Neither do you. Unless Jesus puts a leaf in the table and pulls up a chair and says, there's room for you here. I was going to be excluded. I was going to be on the outside. And Jesus made space for me. Because the gospel changes who sits at the table. You ever thought about what the dining room table in heaven looks like? I bet it's pretty wild. I, I don't know what it looks like, but I do know it's probably not 100% white Canadian Wesleyans. So if you're uncomfortable with people who don't look like you, brace yourself for heaven. Let's be a church who adds a leaf and says, Jesus is for you. Let's be a church who says, there's room for you at our table. Let me tell you about love. Let me show you grace. Let me show you a better way. And it's Jesus. He came for the sick. Are our doors open for the sick? Is the room beside you in service for someone who's sick? Will you shake the hand of a person in the lobby who's different, believes different, acts different, thinks different? I want to challenge us this week to put the leaf in our table. And um, I actually, I don't mean that figuratively. I literally want you to make your table bigger this week, and I want you to invite people over to your house. That's our challenge. Not just for this week. I want this to be who we are. I want this to be people that we are all the time. I want us to put the leaf in our table and get to know people that we don't know. I don't know half of you. And we're growing to the point where we had worship members introduce themselves to each other in the green room before service. That's because no one knows who anyone is because we're growing and that's great. Get to know people. Let's invite people into our homes. Let's build relationships with people. Let, let's learn to love one another. Let's be a big family who puts the leaf in and says, there's room for you at our church. There's room for you in our family. If you ever had an experience at a church where you left feeling like, I, I didn't belong there, I don't want that to be the case here. And sometimes what happens is when a church is growing and there's new people, everyone's kind of waiting around, well, what's the church going to do to help us connect? You know how to connect with people. Don't wait for Mark to teach you how to shake a hand. 
go have dinner with someone this week. And I'm not saying you need to go find someone who's sick, right? Like, don't, don't go have a project. Just meet someone new this week. Go to their, invite multiple families to lessen the chance of there being awkward silence. Bring your kids, and that way you can say like, oh, our kids have got to go to bed. It's an out all the time. Bring your kids if it gets awkward. Play games, eat food, drink coffee, get to know people. Let's be a big church, a big family who puts the leaf in and says, this is how we love one another. This is how we show grace. This is how we show acceptance. This is how we build one another up. It starts with a meal. It doesn't start with a finger wag. It doesn't start with, with a posture of, of disapproval or quietness or exclusion. When was the last time you had a brand new person around your table? Let's do that from now on. Let's put the leaf in. Let's love one another. Less clicks, less strangers, less loneliness. Bigger tables. Amen? Amen.